Well, the good news is is that the UK came stone dead last in 2019 with 11 points. So I suppose the only way is up, isn't it? One week later. Well, well, I mean, it did get worse, didn't it? I mean, James was a great sport, and I think to be honest, we can take it as an achievement to be the first nation since 2015 to get null points. In fact, I think it's also the first nation under the new scoring system, so it's even more of an achievement. And the new scoring system of separate scores for the public, uh, for the jury, and for the public vote makes it doubly impressive in that way. So, I suppose we're leaders in a new way, isn't it? Well, we can always look forward to next year, where now, you know, how much worse can it get? I suppose, but for now. We have a lot to discuss in India, so let's better get on with it. It's Saturday, the twenty ninth of May, twenty twenty one, and this is ballot to talk about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Sam. How's everything going, Sam? Do you have any plans for Bank Holiday Monday? Yeah, it's going very well, thank you. I I think it might turn out to be one of those rare sunny bank holidays, so that'll be nice to get outside a bit. How about you? From what I could see, I mean, despite it being May, it looked awfully cold in a lot of the pictures that I have been seeing. Have you have you have you not been able to put away your spring wear? I mean, until Thursday, it pretty much rained nonstop for two weeks solid. So it's been nice to get into the twenties this week. <laughs> Oh, that that sounds that is absolutely lovely, and hopefully sunny times are coming up. Well, on my end, we're two weeks into a four-week lockdown. Uh, we're due to get an update on Monday, so once again, we're eagerly anticipating whatever comes out of the press conference. That's what. Well, yeah. fingers crossed. Very twenty twenty, I suppose. But this week, we will also be now taking a look at some of the state election results that took place across India. Well, actually, the results were announced earlier this month, but the Indian the Indians went to the polls throughout the month of April, um, voting for various chief ministers in a few states, and we'll be assessing these results in their local context, as well as broadening it out to potential national implications for both uh, Niendra Modi's governing BJP party and for the opposition longtime uh, party, the Indian National Congress. But before that, Sam, what have you been following the news this week? We have to wrap up what has been happening in Scotland and Wales, isn't it? Yes. So we thought we'd take this opportunity after our six-part series into the UK local elections to wrap up the news following them. In the past couple of weeks, both Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford have reshuffled their cabinets, and there's a few interesting appointments to chat about. So just as a brief summary, in Scotland, we had the Deputy First Minister John Swinney moving to become Minister for Covid Recovery, and his troubled education portfolio will now be taken over by Shirley Ann Somerville, who was formerly a junior minister in that department. Humza Yusuf becomes the Health Minister after being the Justice Minister, which is yet another example of a health minister changing over in a pandemic, which actually happened in Wales as well, as I'll talk about in a minute. And the deputy SNP leader, Keith Brown, returns to government in this vacant justice department. 
Both Kate Forbes and Michael Matheson have expanded their responsibilities, with Forbes adding economy to her finance brief and Matheson adding net zero and energy to his transport portfolio, which actually seems like a big promotion given that Glasgow's due to host COP26 later this year. And I thought the biggest curiosity of them all in this reshuffle is the fact that former Westminster SNP leader Angus Robertson is going to become the Constitution, External Affairs and Culture Minister in this government, which seems quite unusual for a devolved government to basically have a foreign secretary, isn't it, Chern? It certainly is compared to Wales, who I know doesn't have one, and certainly compared to other parts of the UK. But I know, in, for example, in places like Canada, where federation is much more entrenched, that, for example, there is a Minister for Intergovernmental Affairs which is currently Dominic LeBlanc, but previously was held by Kirsten Freeland as, um, as, as someone that, um, that deals with regional governments across Canada. And from the regional government's point of view, for example, mm-hmm. the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, he's the Minister for Intergovernmental Affairs. And before that, Kathleen Wynne, was, who was a former premier as well, uh, who, who Doug Ford replaced, was also Minister for Intergovernmental Affairs. So I think in many other countries, like in Canada, there is precedent for intergovernmental affairs or dealing with the national government being a separate portfolio. But what is unique in this case is that it's not held by the head of the Scottish government, in this case, Nicola Sturgeon, it's held by a minister in Angus Robertson. So I think that is unique. So to me, it's not the fact that there's a portfolio based on it, but it's not held by the First Minister. That, that's what I think is interesting. I mean, either way, it's going to be a big role for Angus Robertson. Do you, do you get the impression he's basically taking charge of the preparation for the independence referendum that they'll be seeking over this parliament? I totally think so. And I think that's part of the reason why Scotland has decided to create this role in the first place. I also think as well that he, don't forget, he formally led the SNP in Westminster himself so that he would have a better knowledge of how Westminster works compared to the average Scottish mm-hmm. government minister who has only been based in Holyrood. So yes, I think it's partly because the fact the SNP wants to push independence, which is why it's his own role as well. And it's as well, it was given to Angus Robertson based on his previous profile, high rather high profile role in which every from 2015-2017, he was able to ask the Prime Minister of his day two questions during PMQs. Yeah, so over in Wales, we've got a few changes. So Ken Skates left government and was replaced as the Economy Minister by Vaughan Gething. And the vacated health portfolio went to Ellen Ed Morgan and Jeremy Miles becomes Education Minister following the retirement of the Liberal Democrats member Kirsty Williams. So there's no Lib Dems back around the cabinet table this time around. And Jane Hutt becomes the new Minister for Social Justice, which is notable because Jane Hutt has actually been part of every single Welsh government since 1999, holding portfolios like health, education and the economy. So her tenure is as old and impressive as the Senate itself. So that I thought that was quite notable. But the question I had here mainly is that Across Scotland and Wales, we've seen health ministers change in both of them. Do you think that's a surprising thing to happen in the middle of the pandemic? Or do you think it actually marks a change in how the pandemic's approached, given the fact we're now approaching reopening rather than locking down, hopefully? 
I don't think it's more reopening or not. I think the first part was very much dealing with the health response, how hospitals were coping. And now from the health perspective, it's vaccines rather than the economy mm-hmm. reopening as such. So I think it's also, I suspect, one of the fact that, you know, health has been one of the busiest portfolios for the last year. And to get a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh energy into that portfolio at this time when the health, the stress in hospitals is not as acute as it was last year, probably made an opportune time to change health ministers at this point mm-hmm. in time. I dare say that if Wales or Scotland was suffering a huge increase in the number of cases, that both um, Mark Draper and Nicholas Sturgeon would be much more reluctant to, uh, to move their health secretaries as such. I do note that in Scotland, it was an enforced case because Jean Freeman, the previous health secretary, retired, yeah. not rather than was replaced. So there had to be a so there had to be movement in that portfolio. But in, in Wales' case, it was very much Mark Drayford wanted to make a change more than anything else. So I, I don't think it's much reopening, but more the fact that vaccine deployment requires, I think, slightly different skills to just dealing with hospitals as such. And across these two reshuffles, did you get the sense that either Mark Drakeford or Nicola Sturgeon were demonstrating newfound clout, given that a few weeks ago they both had relatively strong electoral performances? Um, I think, you know, particularly in Mark Drayford's case, this is his government, you know, there were a lot of doubts when Mark, Mark Drayford took over midterm, which I always think it's difficult for people taking over midterm to properly stamp your approval unless you get a mandate from the people. And, you know, this is his first proper four-year, uh, five-year term. So, yes, I think that he has proven his clout very much so and therefore has been able to put his stamp on government as such. The one thing I am curious about is the fact that the size of the Scottish government shrunk, actually. There are only 10 ministers around the cabinet table, which is down two, which considering the fact that increasing powers have been given to the Scottish government and also the fact that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has been slowly increasing the size of a cabinet, this to me was particularly interesting. And I wonder... Sam, do you, is this due to a newfound clout or what, what was her reasoning be, behind reducing the size of the cabinet? In this stage of the pandemic, it's important that a lot of the machines of government, whether they're different departments, are sort of operating on the same wavelength because it's going to be it's going to take a very unified effort to try and reopen the economy in a way that is safe health-wise and is also responsive to other needs of society. So potentially it's an attempt to create that kind of cohesive government model that you will need in this stage of the pandemic. Interesting. I think you're right. And I think I suspect, and this is linked back to the clout question you asked earlier, you know, seats around cabinet tables are often given to buy off potential rivals or, you know, to placate certain unhappy elements within your party. If you reduce the size of the cabinet, it means there's less presence as such the first minister has to give along. And that means that she must be reasonably secure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in her position as first minister in order to do such, uh, to give less gifts as such um, and needing to placate rivals, really. So I think from that point of view, it also does show that if we go back to the question you were asking, that yes, and this is very much Sturgeon's SNP, and she doesn't really have a lot of internal critics as such. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And elsewhere in the United Kingdom, we also had a bit of a shake-up, didn't we? Indeed, and we're going to now look at the two Unionist parties in Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionist Party and the Ulster Unionists, who are both under new management. 
So just very quickly on the Ulster Unionists, um, UUP leader Steve Aitken stood down and Doug Beattie was elected unopposed. And Aitken has been under pressure ever since the 2019 election when his, the Ulster Unionists failed to even take a single Westminster seat. And what was particularly hurting was that they failed to take both Fermanagh and South Tyrone and South Antrim, which they held from 2015 to 2017. On the DUP side, the, the big news is that Edwin Poots yesterday was ratified as a new leader of uh, the DUP. He is the Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs Minister in, in Stormont. And he narrowly beat um, DUP leader in Westminster, Sir Jeffrey Donaldson, in a vote of 19 to 17 amongst MLAs and MPs. And in the deputy leadership, Paula Bradley was elected deputy leader 1816 over Gregory Campbell. And so it delivered a leadership team where the leader voted against an assembly motion banning gay conversion therapy, whereas his deputy leader abstained. And, she's, and so on social issues, the leader and deputy leader are quite far apart in that way, which I think is quite interesting. So what's, what's also interesting is the fact that Edwin Poots has also declared that he will not become first minister and he will appoint somebody else to see Arlene Foster. Um, and we will wait to see who he will announce as his nominee for first minister as he concentrates on building the party. Mrs. Foster has a pledge to step down as first minister in late June. So we'll bring you, we'll bring you updates on when that name comes through. But first, Sam, the vote of 19 to 17 Pretty tight, isn't it, compared to what we were you expecting, wasn't it? Given that we thought that Poots was the big front runner. Yeah, it certainly surprised me that it was quite close. I mean, the electorate pool is clearly incredibly small, but it was interesting because throughout the leadership campaign, if you can call it that, one of the big things was you thought that the MLA camp of the DUP was wanting to reassert Stormont's centricity in the DUP operation so therefore you would have expected Edwin Poots to do a lot better amongst the MLA side and actually clearly it was possible for Jeffrey Donaldson to win quite a few MLAs into his camp because the DUP Westminster party is not 17 strong so I thought that was interesting. Indeed and I do note that they had quite an acrimonious uh, meeting yesterday at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Belfast when uh, Edwin Poots was ratified as DUP leader. In fact, Arlene Forster walked out before Edwin Poots gave his speech. I read this morning that Arlene Foster has said that if Edwin Poots changes the ministerial team around her, then she will resign by Tuesday. And she's not scheduled to leave that job until the end of June. So there could be more news incoming imminently. So therefore, this is suggests a very badly divided DUP then. I mean, definitely. I think the nature of Arlene Foster's removal highlighted that division, and then what's gone on since has highlighted that even further. I mean, just in the results of the leader and deputy leader, we've seen two people who, as you said, are quite different ideologically, but have one thing in common, which is that it is big change from the DUP establishment of recent years. I don't think it's very clear what the purposes ideologically of this leadership team was, but one thing's for sure, which is that it's a call for change and it's an attempt to reassert Stormont's control over the DUP. Interesting. And uh, we'll certainly be looking out for it uh, and see what goes ahead in terms of policy changes and in terms of reuniting a quite united DUP. 
And speaking of reuniting the DUP, I think you would agree with me, Sam, that two of the biggest dividing lines in terms of its strategy is how do you deal with LGBT issues and the Northern Ireland Protocol? What do you think the DUP would do in, t- in terms of both of these elements? Well, I think the Northern Ireland Protocol is very difficult because the, the parameters for the DUP's ability to actually change that policy are incredibly limited. And even to apply pressure on the British government to change that policy, because in most people's eyes, if you were to amend that policy, you're reopening an agreement that, as we both know, took many years to come to. Um, and it's basically what we've <laughs> been talking about. Years. Yeah, two or three very painful years. So I don't really understand why this has become a cleavage. Well, I understand why it's a cleavage in the DUP, but I don't understand why it's become a cleavage to the point that certain people believe that they can change it, because I don't think the scope for doing that is as wide as they say. And in fact, the new UUP leader, BT, has said as much himself. He said that he doesn't think that the DUP are being honest about the scope for changing the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's that. And then on LGBT issues, I think it's very difficult because, as you said, Paula Bradley and Edwin Poots have very different positions on this. So it it will be interesting to see how their new team in the DUP deals with that. And I think we'll get an important signal about that when we find out who Edwin Poots' nominee to replace Arlene Foster as First Minister is, because I think that will signal a broader policy platform. Indeed. And I do note, actually, that Doug Beattie, the leader of the DUP, was one of those who co-sponsored the banning gay conversion therapy bill mm-hmm. in Stormont. So there's a warning of a moderate unionist party there on LGBT issues who could be primed to steal votes from the more moderate, probably establishment type figures, you know, like the Ali, that were more loyal to Arlene Force. It'd be quite ironic, I feel, in a way, that Arlene Force, having left the UUP, ends up now being closer to the EUP because of where the DUP is heading, isn't it, Sam? I think that's exactly what might be happening. Um, And it'll be interesting to watch if Arlene Foster signals her intentions beyond the DUP, because we talked about her walking away from the party entirely when we talked about Arlene Foster resigning a few weeks ago. And it'll be interesting to see if she actually goes as mu- goes as far as signalling her next political intentions. Um, but we'll be watching that very closely, I'm sure. One final thing we want to talk about, because I think this is, again, very interesting and rather unique situation, certainly for British politics, that it's certainly very rare that a party leader doesn't appoint himself immediately as the head of government. Um, why did Edwin Poots choose not become first minister because I mean if you already gotten party leader I'm sure you must have ambitions to become first minister isn't it yeah it's I I always thought that was a bit of a strange one because he said his reasoning was that he wanted to remain agriculture minister which seems a strange thing for a politician to say when the position of first minister is basically yours if you want it um but I wonder if it's maybe part of what we hinted at earlier is that maybe he views himself more as a transitional figure away from the more establishment side of the DUP that have been clearly annoying so many members of the party in recent years, and whether he wants to be able to change the operation of 
the DUP as a party and as a governing force in Northern Ireland without leading it at the same time. So he's more wanting to be a transformational figure than the person who it actually changes into. Um, But there's quite a few names being floated as potential appointments, including even his deputy leader, Paula Bradley, which would certainly be an interesting one, given the fact that they remo- part of the reason they removed Arlene Foster was over her position on social issues, and then they appoint somebody who has those same views would be very strange, but um, it's certainly something to watch. But doesn't it therefore signal potential conflict in the future, where you have the head of your party, you know, pulling the strings as such of the head of government? How would that relationship work? isn't it? Because you've got two quite distinct power bases, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking from the perspective of the public. When you're going to a general election, who are you watching to be the signal of what that party represents? Are you watching the First Minister, who is clearly, I think, going to be more powerful than the leader of the party, because they're the ones who are going to be talking to Westminster, they're the ones who are going to be engaging with the other leaders of devolved administrations. So if you have a situation where you have Edwin Poots as leader of the DUP and somebody else as first minister, who leads a a campaign? Who is the figurehead for the public of what that party represents? I think there's bound to be some confusion there. Indeed. And particularly if, like you say, Paula Bradley and an LGBT issue comes up. Yeah. And, you know, social issues are not those where you can compromise, isn't it? If you have a very black and white opinion. So it will remain to be seen who disappointed. And we will certainly keep an eye out and inform viewers over who will be the new Northern Ireland First Minister. Uh, Just quickly as well, that before we run on this section, if we go back to Australia, we talk very quickly but the fact that Jodie McKay was under the New South Wales Labour leaders under pressure last week following the upper hand the by-election. Well, I can tell you that as of uh, she resigned yesterday as party leader in quite a tearful speech, actually, that she gave. And the New South Wales Labour Party is in process of nominating or trying to choose who its next leader will be. And it looks like at this stage, it could head to a contest, which means it'll take another three months to appoint a leader thanks to party rules. So completely shambolic is, there, is, is New South Wales Labour at the moment. So I just thought that was a quick update of where things are at. And on that note, I think it's a good moment to pause and we'll be right back in just a moment. Welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. So as we said at the top of the show, this week, for the first time on this podcast, actually, we'll be taking a look at the country of India in particular the results of their five recent state elections that were held throughout late March and early April, of which the results were revealed a few weeks ago. And we'll be analysing these state results in detail and then broadening out our discussion to the state of Indian politics in general. And for reference, those five states are Assam, Kerala, Puducherry, the Territory, Tamil Nadu and West Bengal, so quite some interesting ones to talk about there. And these results came in amid a COVID crisis, which is getting very serious in India and is sweeping across the country. And they were really a big test of Modi's enduring support across the nation. And I'm sure that's something we'll be talking about today. But I think for now, it's probably worth getting straight into it by talking about the results across the states and what happened within them. And potentially, Chern, we could start with states in the south. 
Indeed, and before we just start the states and stuff, first of all, let's just quickly say that our heart goes out to India and all the Indians currently suffering through what's an absolutely appalling COVID crisis. We wish them very much all the best as they mm-hmm. as they tackle it and uh, hope that they stay safe and stay healthy. I think that's we should say that before we get started. For sure. Anyway, let's start with the state of Kerala because I think that's a, g- a very good place to start. Kerala is dominated by two alliances. One in which we're quite familiar with is the UPA, which is the United Progressive Alliance, which is led by the Congress Party. And the other is slightly unique in Kerala, which is the fact that it has a very strong Communist Party presence, which is led currently by the Communist Party Marxists. And they are leading something called the Left Democratic Front. And we should say, and it's quite amusing, that there is a Communist Party Marxist which is very distinct from the Communist Party of India, who is the second biggest party within that left democratic front. And I did a bit of digging on this, Sam, and it's largely, you know, remnants of the Sino-Soviet split in 1964. So I can't believe it's had such an impact on regional Indian politics from such a long time ago, and that they haven't reconciled since then. It's really a totally (laughs) different era. Anyway, in this election, the Left Democratic Front increased majority in the Legislative Assembly. It gained eight seats to 99, and the, the Congress-led alliance lost six seats to be left with 41, and the BJP lost a single seat that it held. So, first of all, there was history that was made here. This is the first time since the 1977 election whereby an alliance was re-elected, and the chief minister himself, Pinarami Vijayan, was a, became the first chief minister to be re-elected after completing a full five-year term in office. So, Sam, first of all, why are the communists such a potent force in these states? Because, I mean, India has never been had a communist government. And in a state, we're going to discuss West Bengal later on, where it used to have a large communist presence that very much dissipated, you know, about 10, 20 years ago. So how has it managed to retain its appeal of strength, really? I mean, my digging into this went down two routes, really. One was an original thing of why is the Communist Party popular in Kerala particularly? And then another one was why is the Communist Party popular in being re-elected? Um, and the original one actually came down to the fact that the Communist Party of India was actually formed within Kerala because when the Communist Party members were expelled from what was then the Congress Socialist Party back in the post-independence era, it was actually within a city in Kerala that the Communist Party was formed and the infrastructure began. So there's actually a rich history of Communist Party organization and infrastructure which in in Kerala, which has largely held. And one of the reasons for that is that a lot of people say that it's important that the Communist Party in Kerala has actually had quite a well-oiled party system, which is unusual for Communist parties internationally, because usually Communist parties internationally don't have to fight very hard at elections, because there's (laughs) usually tinges of authoritarianism there, which is probably the understatement of the century. Whereas actually the Communist Party of India is very used to fighting elections. It's not autocratic and it loses power quite frequently, as you said, by the fact that this is the first government in Kerala ever since 1977 to retain government. So they're quite used to fighting elections. They're not complacent and they care about outcomes. 
Um, and it's outcomes, really, that I think have driven this because Kerala actually has some of the best literacy rates in India. In fact, I think it has the best literacy rates. And per the Public Affairs Index, it's actually the best governed state in India. So I think the reason they managed to maintain popularity here is because their outcomes are good and they actually would gain plaudits for their handling of both the COVID-19 pandemic and also just before that quite a horrific cyclone back in 2017 as well. So I think they've actually got credit for just governing well. Indeed, and as we talked about, you know, apart the except, large exception of Donald Trump, if you handle the COVID crisis well, you tend to be rewarded, rewarded and sometimes in quite handsome ways. Just a little fun fact for you. Do you know the last time an Indian prime minister was successfully re-elected after serving a full five-year term? Was it Modi? No, it was actually Modi's predecessor, Man Mohan Singh, in 2009, where he served, a, he, was, he became prime minister after the 2004 elections, and he successfully won re-election in 2009. But nonetheless, Indian has been having general elections since the 50s. So it's taken that long for uh, uh, prime minister at national level to retain government after serving mm. one full term, which we, we take for granted if you know if you come from the United Kingdom of it, you know, happening relatively frequently. I mean, less so under Brexit, but over we can think of many UK leaders that have served their full term and successfully mm-hmm. won re-election after five years. So I think that's interesting as well. Um, if you compare and contrast. I think, therefore, one thing I'm going to say is that as with neighbouring Tamil Nadu, uh, the BJP doesn't really have an appeal in these states, despite vastly increasing their appeal in the states we're going to discuss later. Why has the BJP failed to make any advances, both in Kerala and through Tamil Nadu itself? I mean, in Kerala, I think part of it comes down to the fact that it's quite difficult for a party like the BJP who market themselves at least traditionally, on trying to expose problems in or prey on more disadvantaged groups, whereas in Kerala, the outcomes, the social outcomes are quite good. So it's quite difficult to go on quite a nationalist platform when outcomes are quite good within the state. Indeed. And I think that's a very good opportunity to talk about Tamil Nadu's politics. I think you agree, Sam, is completely different from uh, the rest of the country in the sense that it's, yeah, I, I think that's what's fascinating about these Indian states, really, is that all of them have these unique little twists on them um, that are separate from the national scene. And it's just very interesting to look at. Indeed. And, and I think that that is and that's no better exemplified by looking at Tamil Nadu, where it's sort of changing government with DMK leader MK Stalin. And no, that is not a mispronunciation. His last name really is Stalin, was elected chief minister and he defeated ADA DMK leader and incumbent Adipabi K. Panaswamy. And I'm really sure I probably butchered the pronunciation. Anyway, the so the AIA DMK has been dominating recent Tamil Nadu politics, largely through its leader Jayatelia, who was chief minister since the 1990s, on and off. And the reason why it's been on and off is that she had to step down as chief minister due to the fact that she was fighting various corruption scandals, and she served a total of six terms in office. She nevertheless has seen widely seen as a god among her supporters, not least for the fact that she has promoted many pro-poor policies, such as giving away free TVs to households, but also because she's a highly popular Tamil actress and something we're going to come back to later. 
and she passed away in December 2016. And after an internal power struggle, Palaswami was elected, was sworn in a year later after division within her party. Her mentor and was the founder of the ADI DMK, MG Ramachandran, who split from the DMK itself. And both Jayatelia and MG Ramachandran were highly successful Tamil movie stars and managed to successfully convert their popularity from the small screen into the ballot box. So Sam, just before we talk about um, the results of the Tamil Nadu election in a bit more detail, Tamil Nadu politics has been dominated by figures from the movie industry. Why is that so? Well, it's actually really interesting when I was looking into this because it was in the post in the immediate post-war era when we were we were getting more prominent in the cinema world internationally. The DMK at the time actually founded a film wing and was one of the first parties in India to capitalize on the growing film industry in India. So basically they were producing ideological films or they were putting stars into films which were not they weren't propaganda necessarily but they were politically charged films that the DMK would use to promote their politicians so actually the DMK's origins in terms of their big success within Tamil Nadu originated around the film industry so that's why a lot of movie stars tend to come into it um, and Although the film industry has moved on from the days of explicit ideologies and the DMK being one of the main production houses in Tamil Nadu, the, the big film dynasties within the party infrastructures seem to remain, which is interesting. Indeed, and you know, we just have to look at the DMK side, that, that influence still lives on in the fact that uh, MK Stalin's father um, was Mutvi Karunadi, and he was known as the artist or Tamil scholar for his contributions to Tamil literature, including screenwriting mm -hmm. as well. So that still lives on. And what I find very interesting is the fact that she, he and Jaya Taylor both contested the 2016 election, but both have since passed away since then. So it's, it's really the case of both the leader of opposition and the chief minister both passing away before the next election comes around, which I can't think of another example, really. Could that, that could be one of the reasons why the DMK won the election between and went from 100 seats to 159 seats, which is above the 118 seats needed to govern, with major losses suffered by the ADA DMK, which virtually halved the number of seats it got from 136 before the election to 75. So the result, so therefore, Sam, could it be solely attributed to the fact that uh, the popular Jayatala was no longer standing, while the son of a former chief minister who has you know, been quite a big personality within Tamil Nadu is standing for the DMK or the other factors at play? I mean, I think the fact that the two leaders passed away added a lot of uncertainty into the election because, as you said, both of them have served as chief minister of Tamil Nadu five times. This has been a very long period of rule. And I think when both of them have died and vanished from Tamil Nadu politics, it adds a lot of uncertainty into the air, even though they're leading quite established parties. So I think that cannot be understated just how important that was. Um, but it, I thought what I thought was particularly interesting, and I know you wanted to talk about this a bit later on, was the extent of the rural urban divide in this election, um, which I think goes a long way in explaining... Mm. The, the how the results end up falling out. Just as an example of that, um, the DMK won 40 of the 50 urban seats available 
And of the 75 seats that the AIADMK won, 58 of them were rural. So the split is incredibly stark. Um, and it seems to be that a lot of this was centered around quite what we would see as relatively niche issues. The DMK promotes quite intense federalism and they're trying to distinctly separate themselves from national politics. And just a couple of examples of this is that um, the Kudankulam nuclear plant and the NWET medical exams, which were two frequently cited national policies that promoted um, the people of Tamil Nadu wanting to vote against the more central government-leaning party um, because they viewed them as outsiders trying to impress upon the state too high standards in the case of the medical exam and in case of the nuclear plant not consulting um, local people. So they thought they wanted to take out the what they perceived as the anti-people politics of the BJP on the AIA DMK and that started in 2019 and seemed to be replicated again this time around. So I think although they're parties who want to distance themselves from national politics, they couldn't help but one of them get wrapped up in scandals that were directed towards the national government. That's very interesting indeed. And yes, you're right. I think in Tamil Nadu in particular, there is a strong element of local politics being very much in play. Finally, we're going to turn to the third uh, state in the held elections. Well, when I say state, its constitute parts are not actually geographically connected to each other. And that's in Puducherry, which is a union territory formed out of four territories, or as previously known as French India. And the enclaves in Tamil Nadu, Andhra Pradesh, and Kerala. So, and what and the elections there saw a change in government from the UPA, which was previously led by the Congress Party, to the NDA, which is will be led by the new chief minister and Rangaswamy, who is the leader of the All India NR Congress. And Congress largely has itself to blame for why it lost government, as it went from 15 seats before the election to two, and the DM and its DMK ally once gained four seats from two to six. So it was unable to reverse the losses suffered by Congress. And on the NDA side, both the All India NR Congress, which is 10 seats, uh, got 10 seats, which is up two, and the BJP, who got six seats, just doubled the number of seats they had last time, uh, both contributed to them gaining government. There's also a significant block of independents, which make up the 30-seat chamber, and they are largely supporting the all India NR Congress and the BJP. So Sam, just a quick question on Puducherry itself. Is that, you know, this is one of the few times that we can talk about a territory which is not geographically connected to each other. So has Puducherry, you think, developed its own political identity or because the enclaves of larger states, are the politics of these states very much influencing, of the larger states influencing the very much the election results in Puducherry itself? I think my instinct on this question is that it's actually been able to form some kind of independent political identity. But when I say independent political identity, I mean from the states they're enclaves of and actually more in line with what's going on nationally. Because it's interesting that within Puducherry, we saw, I think it's the first NDA government in the territory's history which is aligned with the BH the governing BJP party nationally, whereas we've just talked about 
two of the states that it's enclaves of, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, who are distinctly turning away from the governing party, the BJP, and its and its allies. Or its allied yes. party, isn't it? Um, so it seems that ta- that Puducherry, at least on the surface, seems to more align itself with the mood nationally than the states that neighbour it. But I don't know if you have a different perspective, Chern. I think you're largely right that they're very much more national national elections compared to the regional ones along it. And I think that's a good transition to talk about two more states in the Northeast where suddenly the national parties were very much more involved, isn't it, Sam? Oh, for sure. And those ones in question are Assam and West Bengal. Um, and I think it'd be helpful to start with Assam. So in elections which were actually held across three phases at the end of March and beginning of April, Modi's BJP retained government with a reduced majority. And it was actually the first time ever that a non-Congress alliance government has ever retained power in Assam, so notable there. And it actually seems like the most nationalised of the five elections because the BJP and the Congress themselves as individual parties took first and second place, which is not what is the case in the other states we have been discussing. And the biggest conflict here actually seemed to be around who would become chief minister because the incumbent chief minister, Sarbanantha Sonowal, was eventually replaced by Himanta Biswa Sarma, who, until 2015, was actually a member of the Legislative Assembly for the Congress, who then defected to the BJP. And it got to the point where they were actually both summoned to New Delhi for crisis talks with Modi and the National Party. So, firstly, I think it's important to talk about that. What was the disagreement around here and the appointment of the new chief minister, and how did Sonowal not end up surviving? Well, we first say that not a lot of information has escaped from the latter question of why he has not survived, but nevertheless, I think there are clues to it. So to the overall scene is that essentially it's difference in what the National Party wanted and what the local party wanted. The National Party very much favoured in the incumbent chief minister, Sanabar Sonowal, whereas the state officials who are on the ground and who potentially in the legislative agenda will decide how loyal they are and the ability of the BJP itself to pass legislation in the sub legislative assembly very much supported Sama. So I think that was largely a disagreement on what the national party wanted and what the regional party, uh, what the people on the ground and particularly the, 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 the lawmakers who would decide the, the BJP's policy agenda wanted. I think Sonowal's removal largely was because I think, A, there's partly due to the fact that um, in the end, what matters is the local people there because of the fact that the local lawmakers decide how ambitious the BJP can be from a reform perspective and a governance perspective. And you do not want gridlock mm-hmm. for a five-year term, particularly as you just made history in returning a, in, a, in a state in which doesn't usually, as you say, return an NDA government. In fact, you say it's the first time. So if you then descend into five years of infighting because you don't get a preferred chief minister candidate, it might set a very bad precedent in future elections. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing I think is also that the polls suggested there's less of a transaction cost if you remove Sonowal as chief minister. So I had a look at preferred chief minister polls in comparing 2016 to 2021. And in 2016, Sonowal got 30%. In, in across the as preferred um, 
chief minister, and Salma only got 4%. And by 2021, Sonowal was still leading 23% to 11%. But nevertheless, the gap has very much closed on 26 points to 12 points. So in other words, it's less of a transactional cost by moving to, to another chief minister. And these polls, hmm. even when taking advantage, and this poll actually is quite inaccurate representation because there tends to be a bias towards the incumbent chief minister because of the fact that he's more well-known because he's by virtue of being the incumbent. So by the fact that, you know, there's been a near halving in terms of the preferred chief minister state, so just Sama himself has been able to build a base, particularly in the fact that he was able to reduce that gap of preferred chief minister in lower Assam and having already a base in northeast Assam, so having two constitute parts of the state where he was one where his base and one where his growing support was certainly useful in trying to persuade, persuade Sonowal to step aside as incumbent chief minister, something in which I think he will be very reluctant to do, given that he has just created history for the party. Yeah, that's I think that's the thing that I found most interesting about this is that it's actually an incredibly good result for the party. And yet the chief minister seemed to have taken some flack for slightly reducing the majority. So I thought it was a unique case in just political science generally. So that's very interesting. And what was the key to the BG, BJP's success here to retain the government? Because as we say, it's the first time they've managed to do so. Indeed. And I think that's, um, I think the fact that it's been governed particularly well has also helped uh, the BJP's case here. I also think that although Modi has come under criticism for the way, and rightfully so, in the way which he handled the COVID-19 pandemic, I think his, his, his popularity rating is still relatively robust. In fact, I saw that he had an approval rating of 48%, which considering in which, you know, the number of cases of how badly India is being ravaged by COVID-19, you have to say that that is pretty good approval rating in itself. So I think the fact that the BJP is still relatively popular in these states is also particularly important mm-hmm. as well. I also note as well that um, the, the demographic makeup of these states is very different from the southern states we were discussing before, in the sense that in Assam, you know, it's very much more Hindu, relatively less minorities as well. And I think that's uh, particularly important as well when you consider India. Yeah, and finally on Assam, and it applies to the next state we talk about as well, Assam and West Bengal both held elections across numerous phases on different dates. Firstly, why do they do this? Because that seems unusual to most listeners who might not be familiar with that. And secondly, do you think that affects the results of the elections to have different areas vote across a period of two weeks in the case of Assam? Um, uh, first of all, I think that from a logistically, from an India's perspective, I, I really am not surprised. It's a huge country, <laughs> lots of people, and it's not the world's richest country like the United States can probably do it in all one go. So probably the best way to ensure that an election could run smoothly and fairly is to stagger it across two weeks. I'm not sure if you found any alternative explanations for it, Sam, other than logistical and uh, practical reasons for it. Um and I also note that, you know, in some of these dis- some of these state electorates, they're actually quite big, for example, in terms of the number of people that live in it. I mean, if we consider in Britain, for example, that constituencies are roughly about 60,000 people, and that is the electorate size, the number of people voting in it, you know, is significantly less than that. 
I know, for example, in India, you know, if we just take the number of raw votes that were cast, you know, in some places, if you add the both the, you know, if you have two parties running, the two alliance can get over 140,000 votes within it in one district. So the districts themselves have a lot more people in it. So it just makes it more efficient to just run an mm-hmm. election over a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Um, on your question on whether it makes a difference, I think it really depends what happens during those two weeks. I don't think in this election it made much of a difference, to be honest, because there was not such a big sh- in shock, really, to the system that tr- fundamentally transformed people's views of how the government or how national politics is being run. I'll give you an example of probably what I think is the biggest shock was that in the 1991 Indian general election, so midway through the campaign, Rajiv Gandhi, who is the son of former Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, he was assassinated at a campaign rally in Superimbador in Tamil Nadu. And it really is very interesting. If you look at the states that voted before the assassinated and the states that voted afterwards, the Congress party really struggled in the states that were before and afterwards in the states that voted after his assassination, Congress swept the board in all the states. So I think that is probably the only cases really is that you need a real shock to the system like that for it to have such a large difference. And from my reading of the situation, I don't think, I know COVID was a bad situation, but I don't see it as particularly affecting the votes if you voted early in the phase and later in the phase. Is that a good analysis of the Assam and West Bengal situation? Yeah, I think that that's the answer I found as well. And I know a lot of it was citing they vote across different phases because because of the scale of the number of votes being cast. They were concerned that they wouldn't be able to police fair elections taking place in all those regions if they did it all on one day because they just do not have the the people power to be able to observe and conduct that many fair elections. So I think... It's also to do with wanting to preserve the fundamental fairness of democracy as well um, on that kind of scale. It's, I, I mean, the, the scale of the population of India and conducting a poll on one day is quite phenomenal to, to think about, really. Nevertheless, moving on to the final state, West Bengal, which was probably the most significant state election nationally to take place earlier this year. And Modi's BJP failed to take control of it, which was actually their most sought-after government. And they missed out, actually, by quite a distance, because although they gained 77 seats, that was compared to the incumbent ARTC's um, 213 seats, who actually gained two seats in the end. So, saying that, the BJP is now the second largest party in the states, increasing their 2016 seat count of three by a whopping 74 seats. And the 2019 general election did suggest that the party was in fruitful electoral territory in West Bengal because they gained 18 of the 42 Lok Sava seats available and 40% of the popular vote, which is nothing to scoff at. But they seemingly failed to convert these results into the state-level results earlier this year. Chief Minister Mamata Banerjee was almost in a battle for the continuation of Indian opposition, it seemed, in the way that it was being marketed nationally um, in the fight to retain the position she's held since 2011. And she's the first woman to hold that position. And I think she's actually the only female chief minister incumbent at the moment as well. 
and when she broke away from the Indian National Congress in 1998 to found the AITC, she quickly became a key figure and her party became the key party in challenging communism uh, in the country and in the states. And her popular personality and political tactics clearly managed to successfully resist an onslaught, frankly, from the Modi central government who wanted to promote majoritarianism and polarise opinion around religion. So firstly, how did Banerjee manage to win what was pitched as a big national battle, really? I think that's really interesting. And a couple of things. I think part of it is also related to the state of West Bengal, where the politics there is very much more different compared to the rest of India. For many years, in fact, for 34 years, it had a communist government like Kerala as well. And it only lost government in 2011, largely due to Mamama Banjari herself who, um, who did it. But nevertheless, it suggests a unique political identity because there's no, not been a communist government in India, running India itself. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that we often taught, like in Australia, and in Germany that sometimes local politics, well, how you vote at a state level is very different to how you vote nationally. And I think that's particularly the case here because nationally the BJP probably gave themselves false hope when they did very well in the Lok Sabha elections for West Bengal. In fact, you know, they gained, they only finished four seats behind Mamata Banjari's party, the AITC in 2019. And they only finished 3% behind in the popular vote as well. But she was not running in the federal election in the, for the Lok Sabha election. She only was running to run the state. And so therefore, when she was on the ballot, she probably bought her factor more than she could ever do on the national level. And I think that cannot be discounted either. And, and I think the third point is that having a communist party there for so long, and the, although um, Mamata Bandri broke away from Congress, it was, her ideology is very much more centre-left. So I think it's harder for, therefore, a centre-right, right-wing religious party. It's not quite a right fit for the state compared to some other places, really. So I think all those factors possibly gave, gave a false picture to what could be potentially done at the state level mm-hmm. um, in West Bengal compared to when if you thought and we sat down and think about it and you compare these factors in itself, the West Bengal's history, the fact that she's on the ballot herself in a way that is not really on the federal election made the task, I think, a lot harder than it seemed on paper. And don't forget, the BJP was coming from a non-existent base at all five years ago. And do you think Modi will be disappointed about this? Or as you said, was it always a bit of a long shot? Because his party didn't fall just short. They missed out massively and their vote share actually fell from their general election back in 2019. Indeed, you're right about that. I think they will be disappointed by that. Um, I think he also put in a lot of his personal capital by you know, holding mass rallies in West Bengal itself. And the mood was certainly very tense on the ground with reports of violence, um, electoral intimidation, you know, before and after the polls closed. So I think that certainly did play a part in it, uh, that you know, it did suggest that the BJP did put in a lot of effort into this and they would not send in, you know, biggest chess piece if they didn't stand a chance of winning it. Um, so I think he would be very disappointed by this. But nonetheless, I think although the BJP were very disappointed by their performance, you know, going from three seats to 77 seats is no slouch. 
And it also had a personal victory in taking the chief minister's own seat of Nana Graham herself. Mama Bandri lost the seat to a BJP candidate narrowly, but still it's a loss. So I think that is also kind of, and that could be a personal moral victory in it by, in it by itself, really. Talking about the battle here to preserve opposition to Modi in what's seen nationally as quite a BJP onslaught, maybe this would be a nice opportunity to talk about the two biggest parties in India and talk about how they've been faring recently. Maybe starting with the opposition and the Indian Congress, because founded in 1885, it's one of the oldest active political parties in the world and led the independence movement under the leadership of Mahatma Gandhi in the 1940s. It's broadly centrist with a few liberal and progressive influences and is predominantly guided by the Gandhian principle of Savadeya, which is lifting up all sections of society, which is basically socialism on social policy perspective. Um, And in the 17 general elections since independence, they've won an outright majority in seven of them and have led the coalition after a further three. So it's clearly also India's most successful party historically. But recently they've been having a terrible time because 2014 was their worst ever result post-independence with only 44 seats in the 543-seat Lok Sabha. And they only increased that to 52 back in 2019. So why has it been so difficult for the principal opposition party recently? And do any of these state election results we've talked about today suggest good news for their recovery? First of all, I think it's difficult for two factors. One is that um, they have to run against Nyendra Modi, who is quite personally very popular still and has commanded a large following, particularly among Hindus who are the majority religion as well. And, you know, and we talked about the fact that, you know, in the UK, the Conservative Party is a very high, um, high ceiling, a high floor at this stage. And I think that could be exactly what the BJP is experiencing at this moment. They have a very high uh, floor, which is making it very hard for the Indian National Congress, who has traditionally um, relied more on the minority vote um, to, to win elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the fact they've lost a significant portion of the Hind- their Hindu base, it makes it very difficult, really. And Hindu base has largely stayed loyal to Modi. I think it's also been more difficult, not only by the fact that the de- of who they had to run against, but the fact that their last government from 2004 to 2014, and particularly after they were re-elected quite handsomely in 2009, was largely seen as disappointment for many Indian voters, particularly as a sense that, you know, they got a, quite a good mandate in the Lok Sabha, but their government was not only seen as slow to reform, but also had a numerous corruption scandals plaguing its administration as well. So that left quite a bad taste in many Indians' mouth as well. Is the recent state elections a good sign of recovery or stability? Well, I think they will be disappointed by the fact that, you know, history was broken in a few of the states. For example, in Kerala, the United Democratic Front failed to win back the chief ministership despite this flip-flopping of the chief minister's office. We talked about Puducherry, where they failed to you know, retain government, you know, they lost government for the first time. And I don't think the results in West Bengal is a good sign of recovering stability because Mamatma Banjari, although she served as rail, railways minister in from 2009 to 2011, she has a very much unique political identity distinct from Congress itself. 
And I note that the Congress party, they, shared, they only scored 3% of the vote in the 2021 West Bengal election, and they lost all 44 seats. I admit that some of it could be due to tactical voting, as, you know, as you're building this as a, as a contest between Modi and Banjuri. And if your Congress who hates Modi so much, you're probably going to end up tactically voting Banjuri. We talked about the tactical voting on the unionist side. I think this is very much a tactical voting anti-Modi thing, really. But nevertheless, you know, it does suggest that in a political environment in three years' mm -hmm. time, when Modi's name will still be on the ballot, they might struggle in West Bengal still because they're not seen as the principal opposition party. And what do you think has been key to the Congress's survival as India's biggest force for, well, 135 years, really? What, what has been key to that? Honestly, and I think this is something we're going to discuss later, is the enduring power of the Nehru Gandhi family dynasty, which has virtually run or had a large influence over Indian politics since uh, India's independence. So the Nehru comes from Jawaharlal Nehru, um, who was India's first prime minister. And, um, and the Gandhi comes from the fact that her, his daughter, which was um, Indira Gandhi, um, he, she married uh, Faroz Gandhi. She, and she's not related to Mahatma Gandhi, which is a, a misconception that a lot of outsiders in Indian politics do not know. She's not related to Mahatma Gandhi in any way, shape or form. And I think for the, their brand has been so powerful for so many years. And I know that in the last period of when they were in government from 2004 to 2014, Man Mohan Singh was the prime minister, but the power behind the throne was very much Sonia Gandhi, who was Rajiv Gandhi's wife. And Rajiv Gandhi was the son of Indira Gandhi. So, and it's very much the fact that although she herself is Italian, so not even Indian, but the fact she was associated with the Nehru Gandhi and led the 20, 2004 campaign in an upset victory, really, against the BJP. I think for many years, it's USP. It's, you know, it, that, that strength of Nehru Gandhi name has been um, keeping, has kept it for going for so many years. But now it's also as big as Achilles heel because it doesn't know how to win without a Nehru Gandhi on the ballot. And now when its brand has very much gone out, the tide has very much gone out, Nehru Gandhi, it's stuck because it doesn't know how to win without it, really. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and one of the most prolific figures who you mentioned is obviously Indira Gandhi, who in two separate terms served as prime minister for a total of 15 years until our assassination in 1984. To what extent does her legacy still influence the party's direction today? Very much so. I mean, her son became prime minister. The son's wife is still very influential. And I think what she did was that she, when she was prime minister, what, one of the things that happened is that she centralised power within the prime minister's office and started, I think, a lot of the nepotism that, that infects a lot of the political dynasties within India you know, we talked about, you know, Tamil Nadu to Stalin being the, the son of a former chief minister, you know, and the fact that that could potentially have a big play. You know, she very much promoted Sanjay Gandhi, who was the second son until he died in a plane crash, as her political successor and make the Congress party very much the political vehicle of the Nehru Gandhi family. From that sense, her influence very much so uh, the Congress party today. And she kept the Congress party in its current incarnation along that centre-left route because she nationalised a lot of industry in her first term in government. 
and you know she ran very much pro poor campaigns as well and that still very much leave the ideology as well and i would mm-hmm. say as well that she also created in many ways the modern form of the bjp in the sense that she fell out in in 1966 when she was appointed prime minister she was appointed on the fact that the old guard thought that they could control her which turned out to be completely false and it was very much seen in 1969 when the old guard appointed finance minister Moreji Desai realized that she nationalized the bank without even consulting the finance minister which is quite a bold policy move on that front and it was is such disgust that she ex, she was expelled from the congress party and she formed congress i and there was congress o which stands for congress official which was led by the desai forces and congress i which stood for congress indira so i think part of the reason is that she not only influenced not only the indian national congress but she also in an indirect way formed the bjp because desai then led the janata party which then formed the bjp itself so her influence extends i think in modern india not just in the inc but also to the opposition party itself which is quite a mark because i think the biggest compliment you could say about mark patel is not she only changed the shape of the conservative party but you can't deny that in order for the labor party to win power in 1997 it had to adopt quite a few thatcherite policies isn't it sam and i think that might be a good opportunity to talk about the bjp indeed and as i briefly mentioned earlier that you know bef- although the janata party was where it got the j from the roots of the bjp was something called the was in a right wing party called the bharata janasan which was founded by uh, sama prasad mukherjee who is a former industry minister under jawaharlal nehru so again very much stemming from falling out with the nehru the nehru gandhis of the world um he, they fell out in the 1950s and he founded uh the party the bjs alongside the hindu nationalist organization rss and the political arm and was largely seen as its political arm of it the starting point of the modern bjp was during the state of emergency imposed by indira gandhi in 1975 and many of the jana sand leaders took part in the protest and saw the consolidation of opposition forces taking in you know the moraji desai who fell out in dire gandhi as i said and when the state of the emergency was lifted in 1977 they actually scored a landslide victory moraji desai eventually becoming prime minister but nonetheless their term of government was rocky because of the fact that the glue which held it together was very much of we want to get rid of indira gandhi which they successfully did in 1977 and then the tensions within the constituent parties really began to show with some of the more moderate elements very growing wary of the rss and some of the increase in vile and blaming it for the increase in violence particularly against muslims itself and various splinter groups emerged against um and broke away from the janata party which saw the desai government losing its majority and forcing it to go into early election in 1980 which in which saw the return of indira gandhi in a landslide election and soon after the ni- january 1980 election the bjp was formed and while they had a stint in government in the late 1990s and early 2000s under atal bahari vajp they did not have this experience the same level of success as they now under the former gujarat chief minister and incumbent prime minister narendra modi having won an outright majority in the last two election both of which smashed previous records in terms of share of the vote 
So Sam, looking at the five states, would the BJP be pleased with its performance? I think they broadly will be. Obviously, we talked about the fact that West Bengal was a key BJP target and a personal target of Narendra Modi as well. I think they'll broadly be quite pleased because, as we've talked about at the top, it's entering quite a troublesome period in the COVID-19 pandemic in India. And although state governments do have a lot of control over these things, I think eventually the buck stops with the national government. And you would have expected at least some people to revolt. But then again, the biggest surge in COVID infections took place in late April, early May, which is when the results were being counted, not when the ballots were being cast. So I think actually it was timed quite well for Modi. And I think broadly, although the disappointment of West Bengal will be pleased for breaking some records and entering new territory versus 2016. So I think that's a good result. But do you think therefore that because of the fact that that these elections, particularly seen in a backdrop of what India was suffering, is a good result and came at an opportune moment just before the, 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 the worst of the COVID crisis really hit India? Yeah, I, th- I think it was because two of the states we talked about today, Tamil Nadu and Kerala, are traditionally poor areas for the BJP. So it sounded like it's been a worse night for the BJP than it actually has because these were two of their worst areas. But then on the flip side, they managed to um, retain government in Assam and they got government for the first time in Puducherry, which are two new areas of increased support for the BJP. And that being now seven years since their first election victory back in 2014, I think is good news. So I think you're right that it is overall seen as a relatively good um, set of results for uh, Mondi. And I know that as we talked about that Tamil Nadu and Kerala are very distinct political factors and demographic mm-hmm. factors as well that made the breakthrough for the BJP particularly hard. Um, just on Modi itself, the last time in which a single party managed to win outright majority was after the 1984 elections. And you could argue that was very much an Indira Gandhi sympathy vote um, after she was assassinated early in the year. And her son, Rajiv Gandhi, mm-hmm. was standing to become prime minister. What has been the secret of Modi's success? Well, I think firstly, he is a very popular figure as a, as a personality. So in a personality politics world, this has been a good period for the BJP. Um, I think he also came off the back of quite significant Congress corruption scandals. And as you said, I think it was getting to the point in 2014 where there was just quite a fever and anti-INC belief around India and the BJP were present to be a good beneficiary of that. So it was also a case of being right place, right time, I think, as well. And also they've managed to expand what has been traditionally quite an upper caste orientated party in India to also try and give some policies as well to middle castes and move towards a more majoritarian Hindu nationalism, which I think has helped energize the the Hindu population within India as well, um, much to not just the positive success of Modi, but the negative experience of a lot of the Muslim communities in particular within India as well. Um, And I think feeding off the back of that kind of religious nationalism has been damaging in India, but has also been part of the secret to Modi's success. And not only that, I think part of it as well is that 
after you had a disappointing period of Congress leading it from 2009 to 2014, you then had, you know, and Gujarat was actually when he was chief minister of, he was, was very much seen as the, you know, the crown jewel of Indian industrial development success. And I think particularly how he was able to win over those votes was the promise of economic development, particularly in a country where it's majority, there's a significant poor population as well that chance of development and yet tangible results to prove in it when a difficult national environment, he, you know, Gujarat was streets ahead in terms of its economic development. So they were able mm -hmm. to put aside whatever concerns they might have in terms of his religion um, and his, the promotion of Hindu nationalism on a story of economic development. I think that's particularly key as well to consider mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in part of his initial appeal. But nonetheless, you could also say that the way he's run India is very much one of centralization and very much pointing to himself as the figurehead of it. In many ways, it's a similar not run to Indira Gandhi herself. You know, the fact that she was the dominant figure throughout her period in government. And as I said, in the 1977 elections, it was very much, and even in 1971, which is the previous election, it's very much pro-Indira parties versus anti-Indira parties. So therefore, mm -hmm. do you see some similarities between how Neandra Modi operates in Indira Gandhi? I definitely do in terms of centralization. I mean, one clue to this is the fact that I think at the moment, any BJP alliance party or even the BJP itself running in these kind of state elections is endorsed by Modi and has Modi at the heart of a lot of the campaign. Whereas if you look on the Congress side at the moment, it's very fractured. And even the INC is not really a big presence in some of what you would say is the Congress alliance orientated successes or opposition successes, whereas the BJP tends to be involved where an NDA success occurs. So I think that is one indication of that. And also some of the policies that Modi has been putting in give echoes to the kind of centralization and what some would describe as more hardline um, policies as, as a bit of an understatement, I think has also been an indication of some of their similarities as well. And finally, there will come a time which Modi will have to step down as Prime Minister and BJP leader. Is this the case of when he's gone, will, will India revert back to, you know, the, this natural home of voting for the Congress party? And is there anyone waiting in the wings, wings in the BJP who could potentially maintain the same level of success that Modi has delivered to the BJP? Um, the answer to that is, I think there's a couple of figures waiting in the wings, one of which would be seen as more of a continuation and another of which would be seen as a lurch even further towards nationalism in quite a, a dangerous fashion. So, I mean, until recently, Amit Shah, who is basically the second in command in the government, was seen as a shoo-in to be Modi's replacement. And yet recently, um, the, the Uttar Pradesh chief minister, Yogi Adityanath, has been seen as a front runner to replace Modi. And he is openly majoritarian, even authoritarian, some would describe as, and previously founded a group called the Hindu Yuva Vahini group, which is basically a militant nationalist group. He is actually the first person to become a chief minister after running what many describe as a vigilante group so this would be quite an extreme step in the direction and i don't know whether the indian population would endorse that kind of perspective as much as they endorse modi's current perspective but 
Certainly. I mean, the success of the BJP nationally recently suggests that when the next election comes around, they're probably going to repeat that. Um, and it's, it's quite something. Indeed. And I think Congress and its allies are just too far behind to make a large impact mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Finally, and I think this is a good rounding off question to before we um, close. Um, and I think it's been an utterly fascinating discussion. We, haven't, we don't really talk about India, so this is a good conversation to have. This podcast has been dominated by talking about two figures, Nyendra Modi and Indira Gandhi. Is it safe to say that Indian, India, Indian politics cleavages are more driven by personalities rather than ideology? I think to a large extent that's true. I think political dynasties are much more of a factor in Indian politics than they are in, say, a lot of the European countries we discuss. Um, But at the same time, I think, at least more recently, and in the case of Modi in particular, I think think it's the case of personalities using ideologies to, to become a big personality figure. But once they get there, then they run it as more of a personality driven um, situation. Mm. I mean, in case in the case of the Congress party, the Gandhi Nehru family clearly have pretty much full control of that party and have done in, since at least the the post independence era. But on the Modi side, I think a lot of this has grown out of a playing into Hindu nationalism. Um, and I think Modi has been able to establish himself as a big personality off the back of tapping into that as an ideology. I don't know if you agree. I think you're right in the sense that the personality is tapped into an ideology in order to get them there. But once they're there, they oh, run it very sure. much as their own personality. Because I look at when the Congress party started to lose their luster in terms of the fact that, you know, you only can run as like, we made you independent for a few mm-hmm. elections. And I think the warning shot was in the 1967 Indian general election. Nehru was no longer the ballot. Even though his daughter was on the ballot, you know, she still suffered quite a bad loss. Is you know, and I think at that stage, Indira Gandhi decided to go after the poor, poor vote, the the poor to to get the poor and the mark um, as part of a winning coalition. And once she successfully rusted on those voters, she could then you know dominate Indian politics, like you say, over the last fifteen years. And the way in which she got the poor votes rusted on was through the series of nationalizations, through very much more socialist governance really and that was very much leaning into an ideology so I think you are right in terms of lending credence to that it's a much more complicated answer than just a strict personalities or ideology divide and also don't forget you know but then again we have cases like the DMK and the ADA IMK where actually there's very little difference between ideology wise and it's much more of a fact that you know, the founders of the AIADMK AI, really despised its leaders in which it came out from. And that has dominated Tamil Nadu politics since then. So I think on the whole, you are right. But I think that's still, we can't apply that to every Indian state, really. That, that's how I assess it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And as you said, I think this has been a fascinating discussion about India. Well, India is a bit like Germany, where it has state elections every single year. So in 2022, we'll be back round again for another series of elections being held. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we'll be beginning a European theme month by talking about the politics of Denmark, two years on from when Matik Fredriksson um, 
won the Danish election and took office as prime minister. But and as always, we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore tour and leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.